Let's go ahead and pray. Oh, Lord, thank you for this opportunity to open your word and learn more about our God. As we study our text today, would you please help us to grasp a little more about who you are, and by doing so, cause us to love you more. Father, we give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. A few months ago, I had the privilege of preaching to you from Genesis 28 about the dream Jacob had at Bethel. And if you recall, this event takes place early on in Jacob's story. It happens right after he deceives his father Isaac and then steals the birthright from his brother Esau. Well, today we're going to take a, take a look at another strange narrative from the Jacob saga. Perhaps even stranger, if you remember that dream, was pretty strange. And this event is possibly a little stranger than that. However, before we dive headfirst into yet another crazy event from the life of Jacob, we need to set the stage a bit. You see, nearly 20 years have passed since that dream Jacob had at Bethel. And, and he escaped from his homeland to flee the wrath of his brother Esau after stealing his birthright. And to set the scene for our text today, I would like us to place our feet onto that hot Mesopotamian sand and walk in Jacob's path. So picking up right after the dream, I want you to see through Jacob's eyes as the hot desert sun chases away the cool air of the desert night which had brought with it strange visions of God, visions which revived your hope and renewed your vigor as God himself brought you comfort. And in the early infant hours of the morning, you set up a monument to God, and you vow that if he will prosper your journey and bring you back to your father's house in peace, you will serve him. Setting your face now firmly towards the east, you set off on your journey, and you find that God is indeed with you. For in his providence, he has led you right where you needed to go. You come to the ancestral home of your mother, and as a bride price for marrying his daughter, Rachel, you begin keeping sheep for your uncle Laban. But after seven years of grueling shepherd work in the unforgiving Mesopotamian desert, you receive a dose of your own medicine. Just as you had deceived and tricked your brother Esau and your father Isaac into stealing the birthright, your uncle now deceives you, tricking you into marrying his younger daughter, Leah, instead of Rachel. In a fit of rage, you question your uncle, but that rage dissipates almost as soon as it forms. For you realize that because of your own deceitfulness, because of your own trickery, you really have been left in no position to complain. And if you truly wish to marry Rachel, you will serve your uncle for an additional seven years so now after 14 years of shepherding, the memories of your homeland begin to fade. The sound of your voice as you ask God to bring you back to your father's house in peace seem to be drowned out in the noise of your uncle's bleeding sheep. But the Lord's memory does not fade. And the Lord's hearing cannot be drowned out. And after six more years of shepherding and the birth of 11 sons, the Lord answers your request. And he says to you, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. You gather up all the great wealth which the Lord had provided for you. And after one last bout with your uncle, from which the Lord again saves you, your fears now turn from your uncle Laban to your brother Esau. 
You see, the last words you heard spoken about Esau came from the quivering lips of your mother as she warned you, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Though I'm sure those 20 years probably seemed like a lifetime for Jacob, he had not yet matured much spiritually. Rather than trusting in the Lord who had provided for him over the past 20 years to protect him, he instead fears Esau and he devises a plan of his own to appease the wrath of his brother. You see, Jacob sends messengers on ahead of him with extravagant gifts, hoping that if Esau received these gifts before he received Jacob, maybe that would blunt the blow a little bit. But on the the eve of the night of their meeting, Jacob finds himself alone on the banks of the Jabbok River. And while there, we come to the strange text, which we will be studying today. So if you're not already with me, turn with me to Genesis chapter 32. Genesis chapter 32, and follow along. I'm going to read our entire text for today, verses 22 through 30. The same night... He arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. A man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, "'Let me go, for day is broken.'" But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Okay, so full participation here. By show of hands, how many of you were like me when, when you read that verse the first time and you thought, I have no earthly idea what's going on here? Okay, good. A few of you. I'm not the only one. All right, second question. How many of you read that verse or those verses and pictured in your head some cheesy ring and mat wrestling match like you'd see on TV? <laughs> All right, a few of you. Now I know who not to sit next to at the next church potluck. But But when I read these verses, four major questions came into my mind. And by answering these questions together this morning, Lord willing, we'll have a better grasp of what is going on in this strange, very strange text. So the four questions are as follows. And you don't have to write these down. We're going to go through these together, but this is just a general overview. One, who was this man? Two, what does the text mean by wrestled? Three, what on earth was the meaning of it all? What was the point of this? And four, how, if at all, can this apply to me? So let's attempt to answer our first question together. Who was the man? Number one, a mysterious figure. As Jacob sat in the night's darkness along the banks of the Jabbok River, a strange figure appears appears before him. And we aren't told much about this figure's identity at first. We're only told that he was a man. However, Jacob seems to think that this man was divine. Look at verse 26. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. 
But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Sort of strange, isn't it, that Jacob would ask a blessing from this mysterious figure who appeared in the dark to wrestle with him? That is, unless Jacob knew something more about this man's identity than we do. Look down to verse 28. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And then down to verse 30. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. As Jacob grappled in the dark with this mysterious figure, something informed him of the fact that this was no ordinary man. I have no doubt that Jacob indeed knew and was correct that this midnight wrestler was none other than God himself. But still, the recognition of this man being God almost brings up more questions than it answers. For example, how did God appear in physical form? Well, thankfully, centuries after this event takes place, the prophet Hosea shed some light on that very question for us. In Hosea chapter 12, verses 3 and 4, he says, and he's speaking of Jacob in this story, In his manhood he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. Now wait just a second, Hosea. That confuses things even further, as Rick would say, back the angel truck up a bit, buddy. (laughs) Was it God or was it an angel? Well, notice what Hosea said. He said, Jacob strove with God. Then he goes on to say, Jacob strove with the angel. What Hosea is doing is equating the two. He is equating this angel with God. And this isn't the first time we see God appear in the form of this angel. In Exodus 23, God sends an angel before the Israelites to lead them into the land of Canaan. And God tells the Israelites to pay careful attention to him, that is the angel, and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression. For my name, that is the name of God, is in him, the angel. The fact that this angel possessed the very name of God tells us that this angel is God what we would call a theophany or a visible, physical manifestation of God. And you don't have to memorize that word, but that's just the technical term for God appearing in physical form. And obviously, much, much more could be said about this, uh, but hopefully you're with me. The man who wrestled with Jacob, this angel, as Hosea says, was none other than God himself. So the next question we asked was, What does the text mean by wrestled? A rumble at the river. So this man who we have identified as God is said in verse 24 to have wrestled with Jacob until daybreak. Now this for me was the most baffling part of this entire story. It's strange enough that God would appear in physical form to Jacob, but he wrestled with him? Now I don't know about you, but when I think of wrestling, the first thing that comes to my mind is the wrestling matches I had with my cousins growing up. You know, full Nelson headlocks, body slams, the works. And all of that makes perfect sense for some stupid teenage boys. But for God, what on earth is going on here? At this point, taking a look at the historical setting and having some understanding of the way wrestling was used in the ancient Near East should help clarify what's going on in this wrestling match. As seminary president Edmund P. Clowney points out, he says, In the ancient Near East, 
Wrestling had very different associations from the buffoonery of TV bouts in our culture. He then says, one way in which a legal case could be settled was by the ordeal of a wrestling match, a trial by combat. He goes on to cite ancient sources such as the Epic of Gilgamesh, which likely would have been around during Jacob's time and and featured episodes of wrestling used as trials. So if Clowney is indeed correct, and I believe that he is, then this illuminates an entirely different facet of this strange Genesis diamond. Looking at it from this angle, Jacob was on trial, and he was on trial with God. But make no mistake, this was no symbolical, allegorical language used to say that Jacob was on trial with God. The Hebrew word used here for wrestle, abak, is derived from a word meaning dust, or more specifically, to roll around in the dust. And later, in that Hosea account we looked at, a different Hebrew word is used, sur, which means to reign over or uh, gain power over. These are very physical words. Even the new name, which is given to Jacob, Yisrael, means one who strives with or struggles with or wrestles with God. And we will talk more about the changing of Jacob's name later, but all that to say that there was indeed a physical grappling going on between Jacob and this theophany of God. And all of it was done as some sort of a trial for Jacob. So now taking into account who it was Jacob was wrestling, God, and what it is they were doing, physically wrestling, let's attempt, attempt to answer our third question. What on earth was the meaning of this story. What was the point of it all? Number three, clinging to God. To me, the hinge upon which this whole story turns is found in verses 25 through 28 in the changing of Jacob's name. Follow along as I read those verses. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And now you may be asking yourself at this point, okay, so we have established that it was none other than God himself who was there before Jacob. And we know that they were indeed physically wrestling. So how on earth can it be said that Jacob was winning the fight? So much so that God actually had to touch Jacob's hip socket and put it out of joint. Now, of course, if God had decided to end that match, he could have done so at any moment. The God who breathed creation into existence could not be conquered by this deceiving shepherd on the banks of a river. However, God in his sovereignty lets this play out just as we have it recorded for us in Genesis to teach a very, very important lesson to Jacob and hopefully to us. In answering our third question of what it all means, we will need to look at three components of our text. So the first component, A, putting his hip out of joint. Aside from the obvious weakening of Jacob that occurs when the Lord puts his hip out of socket, there is a deeper meaning, one which probably would have been clearer to the original Hebrew audience than it is for us. 
You see, the word used here for hip, or some of your translations may say thigh, uh, in the Old Testament, that same word is often used as a euphemism, a, a nicer way of saying something else. And it's a euphemism for the procreative powers of a man. Let me clarify carefully. In Genesis 46, the physical descendants of Jacob who went with him down to Egypt are said to have directly come from Jacob's thigh. So while I do believe that God did inflict Jacob's physical hip, this euphemism points us to something greater, to Jacob's descendants and the fact that the promised blessing would not come through Jacob himself, but through one of these descendants. When God strikes Jacob on his hip or on his thigh, he is further weakening Jacob's ability to bring about any blessing on his own. Not only is Jacob not going to be the one through whom the promise comes, but he now will have no ability to even produce the one who will bring it. He must now fully and completely rely on God to bring about that blessing. And in addition to that, underlying meaning, and that is an underlying meaning of the text. The actual physical weakening of Jacob's leg plays a key role. Our next component, B, winning the fight by losing. Jacob was already the underdog in the fight. There is no question about it. But somehow, probably in the same way you would let a young child beat you in a wrestling match, Jacob prevails. However, after the afflicting of his hip and the loss of strength in his leg, he can have no possible hope of winning this match. And that's the point. Jacob, who has been fighting from the beginning, even in the womb of his mother, as it says in Genesis 25-22, the children struggled together within her. Jacob and Esau struggling together in the womb of their mother. And this fighter finally finds himself in a battle he cannot win. No deceit, no trickery, no carefully devised plan can help him prevail over this divine opponent. He simply clings on, not by any strength of his own, but out of pure desperation. As Edmund Clowney again points out, he says he did not let go because he could not. God's blessing was all his hope and desire Faith wins when it knows all is lost and clings to God alone. As day begins to dawn on the Lord's trial of Jacob, he holds fast, even at great risk to himself, for surely the rays of the early morning sun would illuminate the face of God, which no man can see and live. And yet, Jacob clings on. He holds tight. And I think in this defeat... Jacob finally has an understanding of what it means to trust in God. It is in this defeat of his physical strength that Jacob finally wins the victory of faith. Here, Jacob receives the blessing of God and is given his new national name, Israel. As a Hebrew scholar, Stephen Dempster says, he says he wins the fight by losing, by being broken and facing up to his identity. Consequently, he tells God who he is, Jacob the deceiver, the heel grabber, and his name is changed to Israel, God's fighter. As Dempster pointed out, the name Jacob, meaning heel grabber, another euphemism for a trickster or a deceitful person, 
which so accurately did describe Jacob up until this point, is removed. And the Lord then replaces that fitting name with a new name, Israel, which typically would mean God fights. But in acknowledging Jacob's faith, the Lord turns it around as he gives it to Jacob so that it means Jacob fights with God and he wins. The third component we will look at, the face of God, is going to be found in the last two verses. Follow along as I read verses 29 and 30. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Two things are happening here in this final part of our text. One, Jacob asks for the name of his assailant. And two, Jacob is delivered after seeing the face of God. But if Jacob indeed knows that this wrestler, this opponent of his, is none other than God himself, why does he ask for his name? And again, some understanding of the historical setting should help us here. You see, in ancient times, it was believed that a name not only expressed the identity of a person, but also their essential nature, who they were. And in the pagan world into which Jacob was immersed, there was this belief that knowing the name of a god gave one control over that deity's power. Like somehow knowing that God's name was Yahweh would allow one to control him and use him for his own benefit. So the fact that God withholds his divine name from Jacob shows him that God's blessing and power are only, only given through his grace, and they cannot be earned or wrestled or controlled by Jacob's efforts. And the final verse of our text shows Jacob's deliverance after seeing God face to face, after which he names the place Peniel, which means the face of God, because as he says, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. In Exodus 33:20, God told Moses, Moses, this is, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. So the fact that Jacob, much less character than, than our, our character of Moses, was spared by God after seeing his face in this desperate display of faith, I think that shows us that it is only through God's grace and mercy and acceptance of our faith that his wrath is averted. And I know we went through those pretty quickly, but hopefully I was able to show you the main point of this narrative. The point of the story is this. Jacob only found his true strength when he was at his weakest. He only truly knew what it meant to be a follower of God when he let go of his own strength, his own devices, his own scheming, his own planning, and clung desperately to God alone. And finally, we come to our last question. How does this apply to me? God's power is made perfect in our weakness. Now, to be clear, you and I will probably never encounter a theophany of God and physically wrestle him for a blessing. However, if you are anything like me, and you have times where you struggle, times where you doubt, times where you question, times where you just fail, 
miserably in your faith, then you will know what it's like to struggle with God, to wrestle with the Lord, begging Him, clinging to Him for a blessing, for an answer, for forgiveness. If you know what that's like, then there are some principles we can take away from Jacob's experience to help us in ours. When we find ourselves on the banks of that Jabbok River, when circumstances in life break us, metaphorically putting our hip out of socket, maybe that is God breaking us like he did Jacob, breaking what we rely on most so that we instead cling to him. And practically, this can take many forms. God may break our careers when we rely too heavily on finances. He may expose our sin, publicly humiliating us when we lean too much on our own righteousness. He may remove a loved one from us when we hold them too high. He may take away your physical health when your confidence rests too securely in your own strength. And the solution to all of these situations is the same. Recognizing our own inability and faithfully clinging to God instead. Meaning, we must spiritually resolve to leap off of that mountain of our own strength and cling desperately to that parachute of trusting in God. And can you picture that? We all stand upon these mountains of our own strength, mountains we have built up over a lifetime. With each personal achievement, they get higher and higher, but also they get more and more unstable. My friends, I want you to spiritually resolve, meaning prayerfully make up your mind that you are going to leap headfirst off of that mountain of your own strength, holding nothing but the parachute which represents trusting in God. You are free-falling. You can't reach out and grab a ledge. You can't hope to somehow sprout wings and fly. All your hope and faith and trust must be in that parachute. It must be in God. The Apostle Paul gives us a very practical example of this in the New Testament, and I'll close with this. In 2 Corinthians, we are told of some ailment Paul has, some figurative thorn in his flesh. And Paul says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Three times Paul wrestled with God. Three times Paul grappled with the Lord, begging him for his blessing. And the answer Paul received from the Lord was this. The Lord said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And in letting go of his own strength, like Jacob, Paul clings to his Savior. He clings to that parachute, and he responds by making this incredible comment. Paul says, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. My friends, we don't win the victory of faith by being stronger than God, by wrestling Him and controlling Him for His blessing. No, we win by losing, by being broken, and then having nothing left to cling to, 
but our great and merciful God alone. Let's pray. Lord God, oh, that we would understand and live by what we have seen today in your word. And that by letting go of our own strength and clinging to you in faith, we might truly understand what it means to trust in you. Oh, Father, help us to live out this truth. In Jesus' name, amen.